Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, we get into part two of the Ted the Caver mystery as I take you further down the rabbit cave to find out who is Ted. Where's this cave and is any of it even real? You might be surprised. Then Nathan is going to take us to the mysterious community of Ong's Hat, a place that's not really a place and a community that's not really a community. Aside from some foul language, there will be some mentions of disturbing events, but other than that, let's just get ready for another Human Exception. Many of you don't agree with my decisions to pursue this cave. I know I know this from the messages that I received and are afraid that I don't have a choice. If I'm ever to experience a restful slumber, I must return. If I'm ever to walk the halls of my home in peace, I must return. If I'm ever to exit the overworld and enter the subterranean world of a cave, I must return. I no longer feel like I have a choice. I must return. For my friends and family who are reading this, be at peace. I will conquer this cave and then I will turn and update this website immediately. I'll include any photos that we take today. And if you stop by the house, I'll show you a video that I have and I expect to be home later tonight or tomorrow at the latest. See you all soon with lots of love, Ted. And that's where the blog ends. We just got punked. <laughs> I feel like I got, I feel like I got punked. So at the bottom of the entry, there's a link that says next. Clicking on it brings you back to the same page. Oh, the site was never updated again. Searching the archives and web map, nothing else but the, those entries have ever existed on the subdomain. But yet, on May 19th this year was the 20th anniversary since that last post was uh, posted online. So who is Ted? What happened? Is any of this real or is it all an elaborate creative writing exercise? Fake. <laughs> Creepypasta. Fake. <laughs> it feels like one of those. It feels like one of those like early... You said it was an Angel Fire site? Yeah. It's, oh considered, my... it's considered the first Creepypasta. Are you serious? Oh my god! Yeah. I remember reading some of the whacked out stuff. Again, early days of the internet, right? And mm -hmm. I remember reading those. Granted, they were all like either real dark gray or like some really strange background color. Because <laughs> we thought we were cool to put bright green or whatever nonsense text on there. Um, that made it impossible and like would make your eyes bleed. Um, <laughs> oh my god, I got pumped. Well, we'll see. Um, oh. So, as I said, I began searching for the source's tale as I had never really done any research on the story. I didn't know what awaited me when I started to dig it. Would I find a rich labyrinth of content or would I reach an immediate dead end? If you do a Google on Ted the Caver, you will find dozens of discussions across a myriad of forums over the years sharing and talking about the story. And one of the most common things is that you'll see people demanding to know is to know what happened or if there was more. Where was page 11? You'll also be quick to find that the Angel Fire website isn't the only place that the story is hosted. At one point, it seemed the story was in a dozen websites, many copying the formatting exactly. Most of these sites began to crop up around 2004, but the Angel site, Angel Fire site is the original. Though interestingly, some of these sites expand on the story and offer alternative endings. There was one that I couldn't find that supposedly had a picture of a creature at the end of it, but someone identified it as a tourist uh, attraction from the Cheddar Caves in Somerset, UK. But there is one example that I came across on a forum called AboveTopSecret.com. How's that for a forum? 
So a thread. DIA yeah, yeah, secrets, FBI reveals right. all UFO.com. Yeah. <laughs> A thread in 2011 was discussing the story and seeing a conclusion, and user Plotus comes to the rescue. They claim that they'd found the rest of the story that was posted in December 2010, and is known as Ted's Mystery Cave Final Story. They copy and pasted it into the thread. In this story, Ted, Joe, and B decide to go back to the cave at the end of 2001. On their first trip back, Ch- Joe and Ted go through Floyd's tomb and explore deeper into the other side than they have ever had before. They end up finding a cavern that appears to continue on to the other side, but they would need additional equipment to make it. So the three of them return home and prepare for another visit. On the second visit, they're able to go even further. They hear some sounds and rock of rock on rock, but really nothing unusual happens, and Ted finds his camera. Ted and Joe don't find anything strange and determine that they'll, they've seen all there is to see. Ted and B try to review the film on the camera, but keep, but just keep running into issues with the camera powering off. So they get it repaired, are able to see when Ted left it behind, and hear a sound of a rope whipping by, and that was it. The trio feel satisfied with their exploration and don't feel a need to go back, but they they did want to make sure that they covered their tracks as not to attract anyone else to the site. It's mentioned that not even Joe's sister knows where the location of the cave is. And the story ends with, we all need time to unwind from all of this and sort, of, and sort everything out. We have decided to wait until spring to renew any exploration and get our affairs in order. Ted, B, and Joe. So this account is really strange. While the pacing is similar to the Ted story, there are inconsistencies. So for one, there's a completely inconsistent date. date. So at the very beginning, it says that they meet to discuss going back to the cave in November 2001. And then they go to the cave on December 26, 2001, and return again on November 21st, 2001. Uh, <laughs> so um, Ted's clearly, uh, <laughs> apparently, a time traveler. Time traveler, yes, yes. Or just incapable of reading a calendar. Who knows? Yeah. And there's there's a complete lack of caving knowledge and jargon. Um, there were many cases where the terms stalagmite and stalactite were swapped. <laughs> In the original story, oh. Ted uses these words appropriately. <laughs> mm. The spelling was atrocious. Common words were spelled entirely different words that look, looked or sounded similar were used instead. For example, like weather instead of weather. The original stories had a few, had very few glaring spelling or grammatical issues. Er, uh, grammatical issues, and I was unable to find any other reference to the story anywhere else online. My God. Amazing. Leaves more questions than answers, but a good thing Ted's sister is here to give us an update. Oh, God. (laughs) In May 2004, the infamous page 11 would appear on gigdiddig.com. The post post is short and reads, Dear Ted, Mark and I haven't heard from you in a long time. Ted, we looked at some of your friends and none of them seem to know the location of your mystery cave. After asking around and offering... The description of the cave from the notes that you posted on your webpage. We finally found someone who knows such of, of such cave. He and Mark set out searching for you, B and Joe. After navigation of the directions you gave, they found a place that resembles the area that you and B had worked so hard at opening. The hole that you worked so hard to enlarge isn't there. Instead, there's a crack in the rock from where a cool breeze blows, and the, the sounds of rumbling can be heard. And picture here. <laughs> Click here to see the photograph I took of the hole my brother had worked so hard on. I paid someone to enhance it with Photoshop for the Photoshop program, but people called it fake. So I decided to scan the photo myself and put it in. Please pardon my f- poor photography skills. God. What? Ted, we don't know the password to your website. So we copied this to a free hosting service in hopes that if you are out there, you will find it and contact us. We miss you very much. Your sister, Jan. Well, okay. Oh, what do you no. think of this picture? But, okay, hold on. 
I need I need a side by side. Don't worry, I have one. <gasps> so with a quick comparison to the first photo that uh, Ted posts in his journal with the um, glove sticking through the hole, you can see it's the exact same picture. Oh my god! Someone's just photoshopped a crack in the wall. That is. It's a, it's a pretty good Photoshop, but yeah, it's still Photoshop. And yeah, just comparing against this picture, you can easily tell it's the same picture. All that effort. Yeah. So not long after, we would get a page 12. <gasps> Quote, we were pretty sure that we found the wrong cave after seeing the entrance that Ted and B had worked so hard to open is merely a small crack. But from the descriptions of the cave and the limited photos that Ted posted on the original cave page, not to mention the cool breeze blowing through the crack and the rocks and the rumbling noises... I found another page on the web. According to this page, and she links a website, it may not take a th- it may not take thousands of years for a cave entrance to seal itself over. We have also found a pocket knife that looks identical to the one that Dad gave to Ted on his twelfth birthday. The knife was found in the area where Ted described that he and B would rest between work shifts. We will continue to search until we find my brother Ted. Ted, if you are out there somewhere reading this, we love you. Please call me. The family just isn't the same without you. Your loving sister, Jan. So, first of all, this pocket knife never comes up in the original story. Um, a pocket knife is used to cut the rope at the end, but it's B's pocket knife, and it was left up on top of the cave entrance. Yeah, this is the last that we'd hear from Jan. Um, oh. But the page that she links to is something else. Oh, no. <laughs> so, God. it talks about two men in the San Pedro Mountains in Wyoming, 1932, who were digging for gold, and they used some explosives to further their excavation and instead blew open a sealed cavern. Quote, inside this cavern was a small ledge on which a pixie-like creature sat, cross-legged. It turned out to be a tiny mummy, about seven inches high, with a total height of 14 inches. Its face looked like an old man's. It had a, fl- it had a flat head, huge, heavy little eyes, and a very wide mouth. It was so well-preserved that the fingernails could still be seen on its hands. It gets stranger. The top of its head was covered in a dark, jelly-like substance. So the post then goes on indicating that this may have some sort of new supernatural being with comments about, oh, there's fangs and stuff. Um, but Wikipedia says otherwise. <laughs> X-rays, um, which determined that this that this is actually the body of an anencephalactic in- infant whose cranial deformity gave it the appearance of a miniature adult. And I've got a picture. Uh. To be fair, this is actually a pretty cool mum- mummy. But imagine coming across Whoa. that. Yeah. Yeah, that would freak me the fuck out. <laughs> so, what does this have to do with Ted? I have no idea. <laughs> um, but I looked into this domain, gigdig.com, and the page is still running today. And yes. you can even still find copies of Ted's story there. But all of Jan's pages are gone. <laughs> the owner of the site appears to be a man named JD and seems to be a prepper-level conspiracy theorist and troll. So I think it's pretty safe that we can write these entries off. God, that's amazing. I don't know if you saw the link that I posted in yesterday in the Discord or the day before, but he has like an archive of conspiracy theorists theories. Like oh. it's fucking wild. That's what that was. Oh yeah. That's this guy. Oh my god. Yeah, so um I don't think that's Jan. <laughs> uh no. If Jan is even Ted's sister's name. If if there is a Jan. Exactly. So the Hodag, um, or I guess it'd be Hodag, Hodag. How would you pronounce H O D A G? H O D A. 
I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I'm going to keep calling it the Ho-Dog. Um, <laughs> in Ted's story, he mentions looking up caving myths and finding out about a creature called the Ho-Dog. So naturally, many think the, the Ho-Dog is responsible for what happened. I was able to locate a, a website that is dedicated to legends about the Ho-Dog, which does indeed confirm that it is a popular myth among cavers. One story, The Black Ho-Dog and Other Backcountry Creatures by George Dasher has this to say. Contrary to contemporary opinions, the Ho-Dog is neither indigenous to West Virginia or to caves. The first known Ho-Dog, Bovina spiritualis, was captured near the end of the 19th century near Rhinelander, Wisconsin by Eugene S. Shepard and two companions. The Black Ho-Dog had the head of a bull, the grinning face of a giant man, thick short legs off, off by huge claws, and the back of a dinosaur with a long tail with a spear near the end. It lived in the dense regions of nearby swamps, feasting mostly on mud turtles, water snakes, and muskrats, although it did partake in of the occasional human. The beast had been transmigrated, had, had the transmigrated soul of one of Paul Bunyan's oxen, and it was a very obnoxious odor. This odor was ranked so ranked that the residents of the Oneida County burned their woods for seven years in an effort to be rid of this beast. Oh. So naturally, I googled this, and this, this supposedly historic event, and it, I wasn't disappointed. Right. <laughs> Wikipedia could tell me all about it and then indeed in 1893 Eugene Shepard did claim to have captured a ho-dog we even have a picture oh god here you go the ho-dog um <laughs> it's legit right <laughs> I oh god yeah okay now see I need to look at this picture again because this <laughs> oh my god what is it ceramic or something I have no idea. Oh my god. Can so, you imagine? Were they that bored? Did they just sit around? Well, like, how many like, hoax, hey. like, crypt, like, cryptid hoaxes are there? Like, there definitely people do it. Totally. Oh my god, I love it. The Wikipedia article also says that Shepard was forced to admit that it was a hoax not long after. It's a hoax dog. <laughs> it's a hoax dog, yes. <laughs> Though that didn't stop the town from embracing this their new local cryptid. The Ho-Dog yeah. became the official symbol of, symbol of Rhinelander, Wisconsin, and is the mascot of the Rhinelander High School and lends its name to numerous Rhinelander area businesses and organizations, including the annual music festival, the Ho-Dog Country Festival. The city no of Rhinelander's way. website calls Rhinelander the home of the Ho-Dog. A larger-than-life fiberglass sculpture of the Ho-Dog created by local artists resides on the grounds of Rhinelander's area Chamber of Commerce, where it draws thousands of visitors every year. Uh, so the Rhinelander Ice Arena houses two ho-dogs, one a full creature just inside the entrance, the other one is an oversized head that blows smoke and has red eyes that light up, located in the corner just off the ice, where it was, where was, and which was created by the same artist who designed the one who built the chamber ho-dog. <laughs> and this is the ho-dog that lives outside of the Chamber of Commerce. Oh my god, what? So good. That's pretty great. I mean, it's even got the classic cryptid, like, Bicolored eyes and stuff. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, The Life and Habits of the Ho-Dog by D.L. Peters. Quote, perhaps one of the most widely known and yet at the same time least understood of the many phenomena occurring in caves is that of the Ho-Dog. It is generally conceded that the Ho-Dog is a small mammal, commonly inhabiting semi-vertical real estate in the neighborhood of ba certain big caves and quite often, for some reason, frequent in the caves themselves. Yet there are facts and observations which seem to belie the con this concept of the ho-dog. Ask most people what a ho-dog is, and a blank stare will be what you'll get in return. 
but almost any caver who's been around at all will at least have heard of the creature, and quite a few will be able to respond with the characteristic most often associated with the Hodog, that of having legs longer on one side than the other because of the nature of the hilly terrain it inhabits. One of the great mysteries surrounding the Hodog is the fact that although it's generally conceded that it's not as normal living spaces is outside of caves, no one has ever seen a Hodog except in a cave. What? They don't live in caves, so that's the only place we've ever seen them. Right. What? Huh? huh. It is and is not a uh, some Schrodinger's cat bullshit. Right? The Schrodinger's Hodog? Schrodinger's Hodog. <laughs> <laughs> Please subtitle the episode that. Hodog? <laughs> make people wonder what the fuck <laughs> i'm running out of topics so i don't forget about it <laughs> i totally forgot about it um so i was not able to find any um sightings in utah which is supposedly where the ted story takes place mm. so might rule out rule out the hoda <laughs> oh little buddy um, so during my Googling, it wasn't long before I came across a handful of forums claiming that Ted wasn't the original writer of the story and that instead it was a plagiarized from a short story written by Thomas Lyra called The Fear of Darkness that had been published in 1987. Immediately, I felt a sense of disappointment that my adventure would come to an end so abruptly. I began to look for the short story and eventually found a copy that left me confused. On the first page at the second paragraph, the story says that it's based on journal notes of an author starting on December 30th, 2001, which is almost an identical start date to Ted's page, which says 2000 instead. So uh, supposedly written in 1987, featured around journals from 2001. Yeah. So uh, reading the story, there are some notable differences. The author's friend's name is Matt, not a bee. Okay, the cave is named. It's Hupman's Cave in Arizona. Instead of B's Jack Russell Terrier, Matt had a Jetta, had Jetta, an Australian sheepdog, and the events move much faster in Lyra's version, cutting out a lot of content, but the content that isn't new is almost identical word for word to Ted's. There is no Joe in Lyra's story. Instead, Matt be Matt is able to climb into the tunnel for the second time with the author. Even though in the story Matt is capable of climbing back to the hole, he doesn't join the author on the final trip into the squeeze. The author goes alone for some reason. About 50 pages in is when Ted's story ends, but Lyra's continues on for another seven pages. At this point, the writing style changes dramatically, and the story takes a wild departure and reads like a muddled horror genre acid trip full of inconsistencies and plot holes. Without any supporting structure, the best way to tackle this is through bullet points. So the two men return to the cave, both going into Floyd's tomb. In the round rock room, the shards of bones, skulls, and tatters of women's clothing. The voice of a girl tells them to run, so what, a ghost? As they crawl through the tunnel, one of them is grabbed by a webbed hand, so monster from the Black Lagoon. They get out of the, of the squeeze, and they see a red light flood the other side. Satan? Unable to exit the cave, don't ask. The lights go out, so maybe more, more, more ghosts, who knows. A demonic scream, heat, and fetid smells fill the cavern. And now suddenly they can exit the cave. Again, don't ask where they run into a red-eyed Jesus wizard who begins to speak in tongues at the sky. It's not um, Jesus's chant is echoed from the woods and like a howl of wolves. And, I'm oh, sorry, a black cloud races over a nearby hill and hisses like a black cat at Jesus. So the smoke monster from Lost <laughs> is what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah so then Jesus's chant is echoed from the woods it's like the howl of wolves. The smoke monster is sucked into the cave and everything is cool. So Jesus is a ghostbuster. I don't know. <laughs> 
Jesus asks if they are okay and tells them that they encountered encountered a demon or the devil. Up to them what they wanted to call it. But he's, then he says it's both, but it's also neither. Jesus then wanders off into the woods, chanting away and disappearing. The two end up- Son of God, you should be more specific. Shouldn't you know these things? To be fair, this is actually not isn't this isn't Jesus. It's just how he's described. Like the way he's described sounds like Jesus to oh me. Oh my so. God, this is so good. God. Yeah. So the two end up finding some old dead bodies behind a tree, conveniently carrying a framed picture that concludes Jesus, but much younger, with a wife and daughter. Oh, so, something shining esque. Also a journal. How convenient. Apparently, Jesus and his family lived here in the 1890s and had a clumsy daughter that went missing. Jesus and his wife accidentally find the cave and in it a bloody hair ribbon that belongs to their daughter. Jesus had a bum foot, so his wife ran off into the passage. You know, the one that the Floyd's tomb one where they spent months breaking open. It's the size of a fist at this point. His wife disappears, eventually screams, followed by red light and the smoke monster who is carrying his wife's one-armed torso, then proceeds to sit down before Jesus and eat it. Jesus sullenly walks away and then decides to go home and get a shotgun. He calls for the creature that shows up and now looks like a smoky black dog with glowing red eyes. This is a direct quote here. He calmly leveled his shotgun and waited to pull the trigger until the last second when he could feel the beast's hot breath on his face. That's too late to pull the trigger. (laughs) That's too late. That's too late. (laughs) By that point, you should be out of shells. (laughs) Yeah. So he shoots it, it turns to dust, and the cave sucks it back Mm. in like a dust buster. No one believes him, so he commits his life to trying to figure out what it was. But a Navajo man comes to save the white man after hearing a story. Oh, come on! A Navajo legend about a creature called the Hindi, or Soul Eater. So the word Hindi stood out to me as it really did not sound like any Aboriginal words that I've ever heard. So I googled Hindi and Navajo and could not find one article that connected the two. That doesn't mean it's not possible. There's many Aboriginal stories and myths that are passed on orally, but it's still unusual, especially since Navajo culture is one of the more predominant ones that we, we know about. Um, what I did find was the word chindi. So it's Hindi with a C at the beginning. In Navajo religious belief, a chindi is the ghost left behind after a person dies, believed to leave the, bo- the body with the deceased's last breath, is everything that was bad about the person. The residue that man has been able to bring into universal harmony. Traditional Navajo believe that the contact with a chindi can cause illness, ghost sickness, and death. Chindi are believed to linger around the deceased bones of before possessions, so possessions are often destroyed after death, and contact with bodies is avoided. After death, the deceased's name is never spoken, for fear that the chindi will hear and come and make one ill. Traditional Navajo practice is to allow the death to occur outdoors, to allow the chindi to, to disperse. If a person dies in a house or hogan, the building is believed to be inhabited by the chindi and is abandoned. So, Indian burial ground? Could we get more tropey? Yeah, already from the whole mythical native person to... <laughs> Yeah. So the Navajo man introduces Jesus to a Navajo shaman who teaches him to become a wizard. Oh! Again. Yeah. um, Yeah. Meet the shaman. He could totally teach you how to fight the the evil. Great. Cool. (laughs) Come on, white man. So Jesus Jesus spirit bonds with the Hindi, which is what the marks in the caves are for. And so when the Hindi is woken again, Jesus is woken to fight it. Mm. Now, this is again, uh, this is a direct quote from the story. The incantations engraved in the wall apparently have enough power for the man to return to our plane of existence long enough to once again contain the entity, protecting us from certain death. 
After reading his journal and understanding what had happened, Matt and I felt safe enough to return to the area and explore a little more. But um, about a mile past the cave, we found two unmarked gravestones. Could they have been the man's wife and child? We never told anyone about experience. Who would have believed us? Many questions go unanswered even till today. Where did the evil thing come from? Was it a natural creature of the earth? A demon or some other ancient creature? Are there more of them out there living the cycle of feeding and hibernating? Who or what, what recovered the hole when we entered the cave? Was was it the spell that trying to contain the beast? Or was it some other force trying to keep us there for the creature to feed on? Why didn't the beast kill us while it had us trapped instead of breaking through the barrier and coming back after us? All I know is there are things on this earth still left for us to f- discover and understand. And we had seen, read, and heard enough to never enter that cave again. So, like, this like, massive departure at the end there from, like, the very grounded <laughs> story of Ted the Caver. Yeah, what the hell is going on? I have what? so many questions. This much time into something. So, like, if the story did, in fact, come before Ted, <sighs> which happened, actually was written in 1987, let's be honest, Ted's story is much better. <laughs> Yeah. Ah. Oh my god. So what is the deal? Um, what do we know about Thomas Lyra? The earliest reference to the story I found was in February 2004 and was posted as a response saying that they have proof that the story of Ted the Caver is not true and explains that Thomas Lyra is the original author. Then, interestingly enough, a couple months later, the same user posts the exact same comment on the same thread. Oh. Okay. There's a screenshot of that. So yeah, exact fucking same comment. Uh. Here. Okay. Well, Panama Jack of StraightDope.com did some digging back in 2008. God, I love people's usernames. I know. First thing he found was possibly an earlier draft of The Fear of Darkness titled The Terror of Hupman's Cave. Try as I might, I could not find a copy of the story. The link that Panama Jack provided has long been dead and there's no archive, archive version that I could find. But Panama Jack has this to say. Although the details are the same as The Fear of Darkness, this one lacks an ending and has more dates. In fact, it's far closer to Ted's story. They may even be nearly identical. But there is a disclaimer here claiming that it was ripped off by Ted, and again, it was written in 1987. This note definitely says that it was that it was at the time set in the future. Though explanation as to why really isn't clear. The explanation doesn't inspire confidence. There appears to be no good reason for that story to have been postdated if it had been written in 1987. Why would you write a story about 2001? <laughs> about a caving adventure? That couldn't happen at any time. <laughs> Very strange, yeah. So Panama Jack, Jack looked into the ownership of the site the, where the terror at Hupman's Cave was hosted and found that it was registered anonymously through GoDaddy. Searching the name Thomas Lira brought Panama Jack to thomaslira.org, which is connected to a site in the Netherlands called ontis.nl. The Ontis oh. site serves almost as a resume for Lyra. Articles on the conservation of bats, caving, his travels, and his short horror stories. Absent from this is any mention of either version of Lyra's supposed caving story. The one segment that you would expect to be related to caving because of the t- the title Speleology, which is the study of exploration of caves, and I totally didn't have to look that up, I swear, <laughs> was a fair number of articles related to stamps and stamp collecting. And what do stamps have to do with caves? Well, Panama Jack found Thomas Lear's name associated with a site called Speleophilately. I'm going to try to pronounce that word. Turns out there's a whole study, field of study about stamps of related to caves and caving. Who knew? What? Yeah. Yes. Oh my Speleophilately. God. Um, here, I'll write that thing in there. You can, you can check it out yourself. <laughs> oh boy. 
want everyone to know very importantly, my cat brought me a toy. Aw. Yeah, oh, so that's boy. the website for the uh, cave stamps. Oh, actually, I think it's down. Oh, no! I, I have another oh. archive picture of it, uh, version of it, but um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Today, the website doesn't exist, but in 2008, when Panama Jack was doing his research, he was brought to a site saying that it was around for 20 years. Quote, the front page even says they, that they only touch on the core topics since the field of speleophilately is very large. We'll take their word on that. Ah, okay. So I did seem to be legitimate, but what did it have to do with Thomas Lyra? Turns out that he was a contributor to the site, which gave him a profile. And in his profile, it says that he'd been working in cave conservation for years and that he was once the president of the Speleophilatic section of the National Speleological Society. So apparently, the National Speleological Society, which is a caving society, had a president of stamps. Okay. Um, so, quote, okay. furthermore, Mr. Lira, Lira is the author on a book, on, on the book called Bats and the Philately, and is a successful author of horror and sci-fi stories, all of which have a small mm. reference to a cave or bat in them. They can be found at horrorlibrary.net, and the stories are published under the nom de plume John Rowlands. So he doesn't even use his name. So, yep, sure enough, these stories can be found on this now-defunct website. Uh, I've got archived versions of the link. And Panama Jokes uh, notes that on his profile... There's a website that's written as www.thomaslira.com. The actual URL points to dougaustin.com forward slash T-O-M-L. So dougaustin.com is where the PDF of The Fear of Darkness is hosted. And this indicates that um, Thomas Lira was a user on this site. So there's some sort of connection between Doug Austin and Lyra. So the Doug Austin site was already going to a 404 page back in 2008, and it still does today. Panano Jack looked up the registration info information for Speleophilately and Antisun and L and found that they were owned by the same person from the Netherlands, with the same last name as someone in the contributors page, John Rowlands. Panano compared the stories of Fear of Darkness and finds that the writing to be different with the Rowlands story seeming to overuse adjectives that isn't present in the cave story. So this brings us to four conclusions. Someone obviously wrote the Roland stories. Someone obviously wrote the Ted the Caver Kit website. Someone wrote Fear of Darkness. And there's someone in the Netherlands that might have something to do with all of this or nothing. Oh. This could all be the same person or be an entirely different person. That begs the question, is Lyra even real? He seems to have a web presence and have to have written things. It would require a lot of work to fabricate such a thing. And why would you? Why would you? It's not like Fear of Darkness was for sale anywhere. The first claims of plagiarism of appearance of Fear of Darkness occurred in 2004, three years after Ted's website went up. Thomas Lyra is, uh, there is a book that's published by Random House. I have a friend in the publishing industry and I asked them if they had any sort of profile on Thomas Lyra. There are records of Lyra publishing a book with the Smithsonian on Russian stamps. And that's the only publicly published book that I could find under that name. But unfortunately, no further information could be gathered. So, quote from Panama Jack is, even if the story was written in 1987, it doesn't seem to have been published anywhere which Ted could have read it, um, unless Ted and Thomas are the same guy or they knew each other. So if we are to assume that the story was actually written in 1987 and is a near-future narrative for whatever reason, there are some aspects of the story that must be questioned. The video camera. So in 1987, it was difficult, but not impossible to get a portable video camera to shoot video. So, but how would Lyra know that video cameras would become readily available in the early 2000s? 
the gamical glow sticks, they don't seem to be terribly common around the time the story would be written. Like they weren't even made really that useful until 1977 and only military was using them at the time. So in 1987, like I like, I imagine glow sticks were probably still not something that were common everywhere. Um, and the cordless drill, the first cordless power tools were developed in 1961. They were used by NASA and other high-end research facilities. I was unable to determine when cordless drills are readily available to the average consumer, but it's likely that there were probably some in the market in 1987. So, and this is where Panama Jack's investigation ends. But four years later, a new user would comment on this thread, a user named Die Scorpion, with some copyright records. They found a copyrighted Ted the Caver story, attributed to a man named Ted Hegeman. The claim is for the 2001 story, but was registered in January 2005. This would have been after the plagiarism claims began to arise. They also found a copyright for Thomas Lira's Bats and Philately, published and registered in 1995. This is not Fear of the Darkness and is an entirely different story. It has nothing to do with that book. Using the same copyright site, I looked for Fear of Darkness, but found nothing. But there was a copyright claim for something called Fear of Darkness in 2016 with no other associated information than even list Thomas Lira. So it could be entirely something different. Was this book ever even published? So unfortunately, I never found any satisfactory answers about who exactly Thomas Lira is and what his role is in the Sega. But I did find out some stuff about Ted's version. Thankfully, there's a handful of amazing internet detectives out there that have done a lot of legwork. And one of the surprising sources is a cooking blog of all things. What? John's blog, as it's titled, is a WordPress site where John posts his recipes. But in September 2009, it seems that he fell down the same rabbit cave that I did. I don't know anything about John. His blog does not have anything about, in the about, doesn't even have an about page at all. But here's what he has to say. Um, He too came across the Thomas Lira story and also did not have a high opinion of it. John presents some interesting information, including the actual location of the cave. Um, so yeah, in Lyra's story, the cave is in Arizona and it's known as Hutman Cave. Well, with Ted, it was very clear that he was never going to veal the actual location. But John had come across some posts in the National Speological Society discussion boards by Ralphie Powers and Adele Green, who claimed to have known B, or as he's actually named, Brad. They also knew the location of the cave. The cave is called Interstate Cave, or also known as Freeway Cave, and is part of the Timpanagos Cave Network in the Wasatch Mountains, American Fork Canyon, near American Fork, Utah. I found a Utah cave or blog that has small write-up and some pictures that definitely looks similar to the cave featured in Ted's story. Oh. So these are the pictures from a blog about that cave itself. The Interstate Caves are comprised of the Interstate Cave, Highway Cave, Roadside Cave, and Left Cave, with Interstate Cave being the largest by far with approximately 1,062 feet in length and 200 feet in depth. This was from a Utah Caves uh, blogspot website. Um, so they just kind of talked about different caves that were uh, that were in the area. So John made reference to a map from the National Park Service website. Unfortunately, the link was dead and it took some digging, uh, but eventually I found the map as well. <laughs> it's better if I just show you. <laughs> so this image here is a cutaway of the land and then shows how the cave looks if you were to look at it like you were looking at an anthill or like an anthill display thing from the side, right? The upper right middle, you can see the entrance um, with a hundred foot drop, the boulders that you need to climb over, the four-way split, and a couple more drops that lead down. And now I'm going to give you a, a closer image. This is kind of wild. <clears throat> I'm also getting claustrophobic looking at literal lines on it. Ah! Here you can see a section called Dewalt's Dig, and right after it is Floyd's Tomb. You can see how the highway runs over this area. 
And the next image I'm going to show you is from a downward view. Yeah, so this just shows how the cave runs underneath the uh, under the interstate there. Oh. Uh, one thing you'll notice is there's a disclaimer in the bottom right that says that a permit is required to enter these caves due to the danger of falling rocks because of the highway above. So these came from the official National Park Service website at some point. They've been taken oh, down. Wow. I ended up learning a lot about caving. <laughs> <laughs> so regions have uh, groups of cavers in them called, and their, their groups are called grottos. So it's like mm -hmm. Salt, Salt Lake City Grotto, whatever. And these days, like, they don't share caving information about locations of caves. One, for people's safety, and two, because they want to try and preserve these caves. So, mm -hmm. like, if you ever want to go caving in your area, you can't just look up a map and find a place to go. Um, you have to join a grotto. And then, they, then if, you know, they trust you and make sure that you're experienced enough, they'll take you. So all these kind of maps of these caves have been taken down from the internet at this point. So it was kind of a challenge to find this. But these have all been mapped out by local caving grotto. So this in this image here, you do see like the people who are responsible for mapping out this cave. And one of the people that's listed there is Ralph Powers, which is the guy from the uh, caver forum. <laughs> so the cave is real, but is the story real? So John found a thread on the NSS discussion board from November 2004, where Ralph Powers was addressing a discussion about Ted the caver. Quote, the story is true. I happen to know B and his dog, and I've done, been in the cave and through the hole after they opened it up. The passage continues on surveyed for about 140 feet with the possibility of breaking into a side cave at the end. It was mainly walking passage after the initial tight, super tight crawl. The passage goes directly under the interstate, both directions and all four lanes. I suspect that what those weird sounds were, were because of the semis moaning over and probably at one time some tire screeches to a halt or something similar. Filtered through the bedrock, the sound could be stored enough to have that otherworldly effect. I've heard booming and odd sounds in it, and it's definitely interstate traffic. The survey team and I did not know about the events until after we'd done with it, nor did we know about that odd Blair Witch type mark on any of the walls, and we didn't notice any of them while we were there. It's one of the tightest crawls that I've ever been in, but it's neat still the same. So the story's potentially real. Then in the same thread, we have, well, I guess it's time for me to add my two cents. My name is Ted. I am the author of the story that you've been discussing. I am the original author. I created the story on my own and copied no one. I will explain the details of the creation of the story in a moment, but first let me just say, wow, I am still thrilled and amazed by all the discussion that the story has generated. I was unaware of just how far the story had circulated until Yvonne contacted me a few weeks ago. I was overwhelmed people visited my site because of the counter on the site, and that number has slowly been climbing since I started the site, but I had no idea that two other people had copied the site with one going so far as adding an alternate ending complete with a doctored photo. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to come to the story. I hope you enjoyed it. I It took a long time to write, and even though there are a few things that I would change, I'm happy with how it turned out. Between December 30th, 1999, and for February 24th, 2000, Brad and I worked on a passage in Freeway Cave. We made numerous trips and spent many hours of hard work before we were finally able to get through the opening and into the section of the cave. During the course of adventure, I kept a caving journal and documented our activities surrounding our attempts to get to be the first people in this new passage. Since we were giving friends and families updates as we worked, I thought it'd be a good idea to put my entire journal on a webpage along with pictures. Then we could simply refer people to the site. Then the thought occurred to me. It sure would be fun to embellish the story a little. From there, it was a short leap to simply creating a work of fiction based on the experience. I felt like the internet was the perfect medium for my idea, so that is when I set out to do. For the next year, I worked on the story off and on. Sometime in April 2001, I think, I posted the first few pages. After that, I added them as, as if it were happening in real time. 
After posting the last installment, May 19th, I just kicked back and watched the red counter to see if anyone was stumbling upon the site. To summarize the fact versus fiction discussion of the story, let me just say the parts about the digging in the passage through Floyd's tomb are, for the most part, true and taken directly out of my caving journal. I intentionally altered a few details of the cave, but as has been mentioned, it is still accurately described Freeway's Caves, Floyd's Tomb, and the passage known as Gypsum Passage on the map. The supernatural aspects of the story are all pure fabrication. Even the rumbling that both Dale and Ralph Powers mentioned existed in the cave didn't inspire the story. I simply used them later to add to the story. And that is that. Nothing mysterious happened when we worked in the cave. It was just an experience filled with challenging hard work and loss of satisfaction. The feelings I mentioned while in Floyd's Tomb were real. That's what made it so fun to write. When I learned about the discussion of this forum, I did some digging and found that other sites were discussing the story. So I read all the different comments in the story. I was grinning for the variety of opinions expressed. Some people liked it. Some people thought it was boring. Some people thought it was long. Some people thought it was creepy. Some thought it was just too far-fetched. The negative comments didn't bother me. That's life. What did bother me, however, was the accusation that I copied the story. I felt like my my integrity was being challenged, and I don't like that. That may sound silly since I'm completely anonymous, but I still felt that way. Besides, I didn't like the notion that someone else was taking credit for my work. Although I will not likely, or at least not immediately, post on other forums, I will definitely defend my story on this one since it involves caves and caving. I would like to begin with the most obvious evidence, the cave itself. It is clear to anyone that has been in that cave that the story accurately describes Freeway Cave. Even using the map as a guide, one can see the description that resembles the cave. What are the odds someone could have write such an accurate description without seeing the cave, and not just any cave, but a cave that only came to light as a result of construction, as told in the story? As Dale mentioned, the cave was open in the 70s, so someone could have been there before 1987, but no one went in the new passage. As Ralph stated, the pictures show this, we were the ones that opened it up. It did take a few creative liberties here in their description, such as the Blair Witch hieroglyphics and the Round Rock, but and Ralph and Dale are are one of the many dozens of caves that can testify the approximate date the passage was open. Now, did Thomas Lyra see all of this at a crystal ball and write about it accurately? Or did someone swipe my work? When the 1987 version surfaced, it took all of 15 seconds of reading it to definitely identify it as my story, with a few changes made. I figured I would read it and see if there was a way that I could prove that, it was co- that he copied me, but it was difficult. Since 99% of what he wrote was copied verbatim from my story, there was not much to go on, but I did find a few interesting things. Granted, this is a little more circumstantial evidence, but it starts to add up, and I'll try to be brief. He lists a couple of different facts, but a few of interest are the dog that we really took into the cave is real, as Ralph mentioned. Um, she died a couple years ago. I'll try to get photos of her in the tomb. It was a Jack Russell Terrier. The Lyra version switched it for an Australian Shepherd. Hardly a dog that would fit into a tight squeeze. In the Lyra version, he used a cordless drill. In the true version, I used a DeWalt cordless drill. I don't know who did this, but if you check the map on the cave and zoom in on the entrance and set on, on the passage, it says DeWalt's dig. I assume this came from Brad's conversation with Ralph about the project. Ralph, can you enlighten us? doesn't really prove anything, but it's just something I notice. Well, that's about it. Not the best evidence, but it's all I have. The post is already too long, and if you made it this far, thanks. And special thanks to Yvonne for taking out the time and effort to get to the bottom of this and contacting me. Also, thanks to Scott McCree. I am impressed with both of you and your efforts. It's rare to see people refuse to just accept what is handed to them. If there's anything I can clear up, feel free to contact me. I wrote the story, but I'm not seeking fame from it. I never was. If that was the case, I would have put my name on it from the beginning. I just wanted to protect my work from other people who may lay claim to it. Clearly, someone read my story, copied it, and put another date on it. I wrote it so some people would read it and enjoy it and maybe wonder about it. Even though the story took on a life of its own, I can make the satisfying proclamation mission accomplished. 
So as for Thomas Lyra or anyone who tries to steal my story, may an amorous ho-dog in a pinnacle of heat find you in a damp and lonely cave. Thank God. Ted is real. The story is mostly real. And this is really the last update in the story that is until 2013. What's happening? In 2013, David L. Hunt's first feature film begins the film festival tour. The title, Living Dark, The Story of Ted the Caver. Stop it. Yep, there's a movie. So, uh, I'll send you the cover here. Oh my god. I'm sorry, that is so fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. This is, I'm sorry this is going on for so long, it's just that I couldn't stop. <laughs> oh my god, that is too much. So, Living Dark would go on to the independent film circuit for the next three years and would be nominated to win awards all over the world before it was finally sold to the New Films International for release in 2016. (laughs) How did this happen? Well, we'll get to that in a bit, but it is entirely legit. Ted did sign off on on this when it was made, and so it's official. It's endorsed. The question is, how was it and and how was it presented? Good news, it's on Amazon Prime right now, so I watched it. (laughs) Um, the story naturally takes some liberties and makes some changes. As the journal method of storytelling doesn't really translate well to film, the film focuses on two brothers who had a falling out years ago who were now being reunited because of their father's sudden death. The brothers were named Ted and Brad. So prior to the father's death, he had purchased a remote piece of land where he wanted to be buried, and this is where the film opens. The brothers are standing over the brothers, their father's grave, and after some conversations, they go to leave, and Ted trips on something. He goes to see what it is and finds a wooden hash covering a hole in the ground. The brothers decide to explore it, working together and rebuilding their relationship. Much of what happens follows the plot of Ted the Caver. Some of the dialogue is nearly identical, and there are scenes that re- recreate the pictures that Ted had been sharing on his website. So um, this shows the picture of real Ted and a, a clip from the film. Okay. Yep. Nice. Nice. (laughs) Grax, creepy. Yep. Yep. So there are some bigger departures, but the spirit of the story remains relatively the same. This is a horror film, and there are some good jump scares and atmospheric horror. The part later in the film where Ted begins to hallucinate really spooked me. (laughs) And like, Mm. I like horror films. Like, it was disturbing, though. Um, The film does not have a cliffhanger, like, well, not really have a cliffhanger, like Ted's story. You know, there is, there is, a monster there, uh, but I won't spoil it. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. And it was better than I expected. <laughs> you know, you, a film made on an internet legend that was like an independent film, like you don't have high expectations, to be honest. Sure. But yeah, the actors played the two brothers, put on a really good show. They re- the recreation of Floyd's team was pretty spot on. Like they had built this, um, like they built the squeeze in a, like with a cross section of it and film buddy going through it. And it was, it felt exactly the story. And it was very claustrophobic feeling just like watching it. That's like so. that. Um, this is, this is making me think of the, um, so Shawshank Redemption was filmed and partially in a prison in mm-hmm. my hometown. And they keep the models of those side cuts Oh, that's cool. To where you could see where they escaped. Yeah, it's making me think of that because it wasn't that tight, but it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I tried to look through pictures of the set, but I couldn't find any. It's just a oh. small film, so I doubt there's really anything out there. But it was it was cool. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the recreation's pretty spot on. Overall, I'd probably rate it like a six out of ten. It's it's worth checking out for anyone that's a big fan of the original story, and you know, there's a lot of little Easter eggs in it for the fans. Like Ted starts writing the website at some point in the film, and there's. Ted's pictures are seen throughout the film. Um, so how did this come to be? After I learned Ted's full name, I began to search 
that, and what I came across blew my mind, an actual audio interview with Ted himself from October 2020. Nick Botek is a writer and a big horror fan, and had set out to create a YouTube channel where he would discuss horror stories and the like. He too had fell down Ted the Cave of Rabbit Hole and had a mutual friend that knew Ted and put them in contact. And what? Ted happily agreed to come on the show. So for the first time ever, Ted sat down and told the whole story. Ted, if you're out there, we would like to talk to you. <laughs> um... So yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to link the video and stuff that you guys can watch it. So like Ted had said on the NSS forums, much of the start of the story is true. A good portion of the content came from Ted's personal caving journals. And there indeed was a cave. And it was a real tight passage that Ted and his friend Brad spent months trying to expand to be able to pass through. The venture to open Floyd's tomb became a pet project for the two. And their friends and family were invested and wanted to know how things were progressing. So he decided when they were done that they were going to publish those journals online. Um, but as he started to transcribe it, he had opportunities to embellish it. And it would take Mohan most of 2000 to write the story. He was not a professional writer. He'd done some dabbling in a few articles for a local company, but it was never something he took seriously. He made the site in March 2001 and started posting the modified entries from his journal and amping things up to the big cliff cliffhanger on May 19th. Ted had installed a hidden view counter on the website that he could watch the number of visitors. And things were pretty modest for a long time until one day the counter reset and he lost track of all the data. It would be three years later that the story really took off. Around this time, Ted was to receive an email from a woman that wanted his permission to translate the story into French for a caver friend of hers, which he was totally down with, but she also suggested that he check out the NSS caving forum where people were just, there's a big debate story and if it was real, and this is what would lead him to that forum. Ted was confused about this and started Googling the story and finding stuff all over the internet. He had no idea that so many people were fascinated with the story, talking about it, and he was totally blown away. When asked about the, the Thomas Lyra story, though, Ted was shocked that there was a debate between which came first, and he was super impressed that people's examination of the details to try and determine which one was real. In the cave forum, one of the people that had joined the debate was a man named David Hunt, and he said, I really need to know who wrote it, as I'm about to shoot a film based on this, and I need to know who I need to sign the contract with. Ted didn't take it seriously, and just kind of ignored it. But finally decided to hunt down, hunt him down and came across his wife who confirmed that David was indeed serious. It was all real and they did want to make a film. So Ted found out that David had actually signed a contract with the mysterious Thomas Lyra. He managed to contact them for that. That was before he knew that Ted was the actually original source. Ted doesn't know if Lyra got paid or any information about that. But Ted did receive a small amount for signing. David had already written a script. Him and Ted ended up having lengthy conversation. What was actually like the squeeze of the cave? Ted has seen the film and thinks David did a fantastic job at portraying it. The plot in the film itself varies somewhat from the original, with Ted and Brad being brothers who had just lost their dad. The film opens with the brothers at their dad's gravesite, and David asked Ted if he wanted to, he had a name that he wanted on the tombstone. So Ted asked his actual father if he'd be willing to have his name, which he happily obliged. So Ted even gets credit within the the end of the credits in the first handful. So yeah, the 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 name of the dad in the beginning of the story is Ted's actual dad. That's awesome. When asked if he's seen the film, Ted laughs saying he's probably seen it 50 times and that he was very impressed with what David did, especially with the small budget that he had. Ted says that both he and David were a little disappointed though, that the final version that hit streaming platforms had some edits done by the studio that made some changes to the opening and the ending that he felt were really, really impacted some of the key themes in, the, in it. But Ted has a copy of the original, which is his preferred version. So I would love to see the original. I want to know what was changed because, yeah, apparently there's some pretty important bits that were cut out. Ah. 
So when asked if Ted had an idea of what the entity was that he had been referring to, Ted said he didn't know. He just focused on the experience of Ted and he never really felt the need to define it, even for himself. When asked if he ever thought of expanding on the story or maybe writing a novel, he admitted that he hadn't really thought about it. But he had written on a script for a play version that he thought went kind of neat. He used to perform in some plays and thought that there was maybe a potential of doing a unique play with this kind of material. So a play of Ted the Caver. <laughs> Ted says the idea of expanding on it, it is daunting, that it took a lot of time to write and took a lot out of him. It's just not something that comes naturally to him. And he explains that he abandoned the original project for three to four months before returning to to it to bring the story to its conclusion. He had already put so much work into it, it just seemed kind of silly to not go the rest of the way. When asked what was really on the other side, um, Ted says, more cave. He explains that it went on for about another 100 feet, but there wasn't really anything amazing. But it was a cool experience for him as the cave was just pristine and untouched, knowing that no one else had ever been there before had a kind of magic. He eventually reached another part that he couldn't get through, so he came back with his wife at the time, who had no issue getting to Floyd's tomb and was able to make the last squeeze to explore the final 50 feet, where eventually the cave turned up vertical and became impassable. The cave itself is located right above the I-80, right outside of Windover, Utah. He says that you have to repel him to the cave and climb over some broken rocks and then repel down further. The one thing that wasn't an embellishment in the story was that Ted used to be very claustrophobic. And he says that the first time he went into the cave and encountered that first tight spot, had a full-blown panic attack and he almost turned around. He says it was a big deal for him to be able to, to crawl through Floyd's tomb as was. Ted says he always looking for new hobbies and with his current being disc golf. Prior to that was mountain biking and before that was caving. Ted himself isn't really involved in any online horror groups or anything, but he has set up a Google notice for when Ted the Caver is mentioned. So say hi to Ted. Hi, Ted. <laughs> hi. hi, Ted. Um, so he gets, says he gets one once about once or twice a year. When asked if he has any plans for writing anything else, Ted says he just completed a short story that is being submitted to a horror anthology that their mutual friend is putting together. He's happy he did it, he said, but it was a ton of work. The story is quite a departure from Ted the Caver and instead focuses on a man trying to escape a serial killer. Looking back at everything, Ted is still amazed that the story has touched so many people, and that really is the best reward. Oh my God, that's Ted amazing. The caver. <laughs> Holy shit, nuggets! Right? <laughs> I totally fell down. Fell, fell down this one. Like I, <gasps> I couldn't believe that it was real. <laughs> wow! I always assumed it was just totally fake, and then the whole yeah. Thing, I don't. I still don't know what the deal with the Thomas Lyra thing is. Someone must have just felt like. That is really, know. that's a weird joinder. Yeah, that's, that's so strange. Like, I 100% yep. believe Ted's story, and though what Ted has had to say, like, I think that's, I think that's exactly what happened, is, yeah, he, he wrote a story and he embellished on it, but how does Thomas Lyra factor into this? Who the fuck is it? Was it actually Thomas Lyra? Was it someone just using his name? Like, I don't know. I, I don't yeah. know. And, like, Ted doesn't even know himself. Like, he said that, um... Yeah, David Hunt had managed to get Thomas Lear to sign off on it beforehand. But he's like, yeah, I would love to see that contract. I have no idea who this guy is. Seriously. Uh, what the? That's, that is, and I can't find weird. almost yeah. anything about the guy. And like all his yeah. websites are, are gone now. He had so many uh, websites before. They're all gone. Like, so someone went through this elaborate effort to make a fake profile of this guy based off of this other guy who's, I guess, a random writer that does stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I guess. I so weird it's so weird it's super weird that is the true mystery ted the gamers who the fuck is thomas lira that's my essay hold on hold on hold on all right nathan tell us about long sat <laughs> all right so 
the story of Ong's Hat starts in a stretch of forest uh, around the southern area of the state of New Jersey. Uh, it is over a million acres of land that sprawls across this area, and it is referred to as the Pine Barrens. Uh, the reason why it's referred to as the Pine Barrens uh, is mostly because the soil that is there what is very acidic. Uh, it's sandy oil, and early settlers at the time couldn't uh, couldn't use the land to farm. So uh, this place that is thick with like pines and oaks and various wildlife and carnivorous plants. Um, to a lot of people, it would be a great place to to set up shop, but because of the uh, the soil was really unhospitable to you know moving in and and being able to utilize this land. Uh, so the place is rightfully called the Pine Barrens because you can neither plant there nor do people live there. Uh, around the late 1700s a town called Ong's Hat started appearing on maps in the northwest corner of the Pines. Now most people think that it's pretty unlikely that Ong's Hat itself was a settlement any larger than maybe a couple of houses. Um, not even houses, but maybe just a couple of structures and just one family living there. The original idea behind Ong's Hat was that uh, a gentleman by the name of Jacob Ong uh, in the 17th century uh, lived there and it was at one time called Ong's Hut. And in a fit of anger, he, uh, in a fit of anger, after a lover's quarrel, tossed his hat while leaving the house and it got stuck in a tree. And thus people started calling the area Ong's Hat. I <laughs> need that to be the origin story of every town ever. Oh my right. God. Uh, interestingly, in the late 1900s, so not not very many years ago, uh, in 1978, a jazz musician named Wally Ford purchased 200 acres of forest land in the Pine Barrens near Ongsat uh, and set up an ashram that he called the Moorish Science Ashram. And it was for people who were interested in studying spirituality, uh, radical politics, tantra, uh, psychopharmacology, as well as other counterculture interests. What's an ashram? Like, what's the definition of that? Like a, like a small community, I think. Uh, oh, okay, so it's just a new age, new new age way to say community. 
Yeah, I think usually I like, it's um, like a, it's like a monastic, like a, um, it's like a religious retreat, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. Like with yeah. most things, white people have really corrupted it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you would consider like a a small town that was built around a monastery would be considered like an ashram. Uh, after a while a couple of former Princeton scientists ended up uh, at this ashram, as well as some other, quote, oddball researchers soon followed. (laughs) Together... The researchers that came in were oddballs, not the people that were already there. Right. Together, they founded the Institute for... Uh, chaos studies at this ashram. Uh, basically, uh, this place was full of people who were interested in exploring hard science using esoteric and spiritual tools. Uh, by the late 80s, they had developed this device called the egg. Uh, it was there, um, it was basically built to explore something called cognitive chaos, uh, kind of a modified sensory deprivation chamber. Uh, and let's see, I've got a picture of this thing for you. It, it does look like, um, it looks very much like an egg. Uh, it is in the top of this picture and it basically looks like a, like a capsule cockpit with a, with some sort of like monitor that you can look at and sort of it, whatever, like track whatever is going on um, with your vitals and so on. I inside. have so many questions. This, this is, is what this is really. Oh my God. Was, it, add some cans and you have Scientology. This is insane. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so as they built this thing, uh, they eventually realized that the the use for this uh, machine was basically them trying to figure out when, at what point does a wave become a particle. So like a sound wave? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Or like oh a wave goodness. of light or whatever. So they were using this to try and figure out and determine, you know, is there a point where, you know, waves become particles and so on. And during one particular test with a gentleman inside of it, the whole egg just disappeared. For seven full minutes, it disappeared, and then suddenly it reappeared where it was. This is uh, twin, I'm, I'm twin sure peaks. this is exactly what happened. Yep. The, is, oh my god. <laughs> this <laughs> the gentleman that was in uh in this capsule stepped out. He was still alive, he was still well. Uh he had uh, he decided he was going to tell his his comrades what had happened, and 
based on his theory, he had dived down to the quantum level and followed a wave all the way into an alternate dimension to he another version the, of Earth. He saw the time knife. <laughs> yep. He's Ant-Man. <laughs> so, this other Earth is geologically similar to our own, thick with forests, oh. but with a distinct difference that there is no trace of human life. I'm sorry. <laughs> it should it should be real thick with forest then. I yeah, right? it should be nothing but forest. Continuing along with their studies. Wait, can he go get out of the egg himself? I don't know. Cuz like he would have had to leave the egg to be able to see this. So probably yeah. I have questions, but carry on. Y- yep. <laughs> As they continued to explore their theories around this and continue to uh, work in their particular field, they started realizing that they were getting they were gaining some interest. So folks in the area, particularly a nearby military base, um, doing their own experiments, were threatening to poison the ashram with you know radioactive tests and so on. So these group of people decided that it was best that they would take their work and their experiments and their whole group of people elsewhere. So little by little, one by one, people would enter the egg and disappear to the parallel Earth. This is fringe. Until this ashram and these folks no longer existed. As far as people know. This is like the whole premise of the show Fringe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which we really need to watch because I never finished it. But yes. (laughs) Oh boy. Obviously this is fucking bonkers. What do you mean? (laughs) But (laughs) the great thing about this was that this whole story was considered probably one of the earlier like memes, conspiracy theories for the century, I guess. The cool part about it is that it all started in paper, uh, in a book catalog that was created by one guy and three of his friends called the Inconcabula. This guy just wanted to do basically a little social experiment. And he came up with this whole thing. And he created flyers and he created brochures and he just sort of, they just sort of spread them out. Um, and this was before the age of the internet. People were picking these things up. They were, you know, reading these brochures and they were getting pulled into this story. And then the internet became mainstream and this book transferred from paper to web page. Amazing. Oh. So <laughs> none of this is real, but this one guy was sort of the brain behind it and was like, oh well what if we can create this thing that people think is real? No. And then it sort of got out of hand, obviously. The great thing about this is even in like early 2000, 
this gentleman, uh, Joseph Matheny, who even wrote his own book. And Kayla, you actually linked us the, the it, book. Yeah. yeah. Basically, the it was kind of like the legend of Ong's Hat, the travel cult, everything that was, you know, like the Incuncubola papers and and everything just sort of surrounding it. So this guy, as everything sort of came to a head, started having people like show up at his house asking him questions and be like, is it real? Like, you gotta like tell us how to figure out this interdimensional travel thing. And he's like, oh God, guys, like, <laughs> this is a thing that my friends and I came up with and we thought it would be really interesting. Oh, <laughs> I bet they didn't believe him. It's like, that's what someone would say if they're trying to hide it. Well, yeah, right. In the article that I'm, uh, that I, that I've got here, a slate article, it says Young's hat legend is real in the sense that it's a real story that was relayed in a series of documents that first started appearing in 1989, hitting the peak of its popularity on the internet between 1999 and 2001. Um, it's a real story in the sense that the documents have been downloaded more than 2 million times. Oh it's my real, god. It's oh. a real story in the sense that it has been, and it is still inspiring real people to go to the real Pine Barrens looking for Ong's hat. It is a real story in the sense that it captivated thousands of people who encounter it on the early internet and who didn't quite know what it was. A spiritual guest, a spiritual quest, a game, a cult, the truth. All they knew is that they wanted to find out. The truth is out there, man. And, and it's, it's so, it's hilarious because we can just throw something on the internet and if the right people catch it, then it explodes. But this all started on paper. Love this. Great. <laughs> And so, at at its peak, obviously between ninety nine and two thousand one, people were showing up at this guy at at Joseph's house and and asking about this thing and and I expect like at the time he was probably like, mm, like I get I get these people are pretty like they're pretty harmless I can give them a bit of information and just kind of get them to go away, but oh no. <laughs> And and that's kind of what it what it came down to in during that time, right? Like ninety nine to two thousand one. You know, you didn't really hear about a lot of people being like, well, being as crazy about this kind of stuff as you hear today. Well, they just weren't able to coordinate before. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you'd get a person or two showing up, and and he would just sort of redirect them and they'd be on their way and but yeah uh there are there's not a lot more to it besides basically that you know this place called ong's hat um it was a small small uh settlement area people aren't really sure whether the area itself was larger or smaller uh, whether it was a full town or not. Um, 
but the assumption is that it was really based on the area where Ong's hat was that it was probably just like a small homestead for one family and then someone attached a whole conspiracy theory to it. <laughs> I'm assuming no one's living out there now. Uh, as far as I know, no. It'd be terrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here. Uh, this was one of the covers to the oh Incunculola Press catalog in 1990, <gasps> 1991. That's nice. some Geiger shit right there. Yeah, that's what I was right? going to say. It is very cool looking. Wow. So, like, how much documentation did they put together? Like, in total, if you were going to download the entire archives, like, how many pages or, like, yeah, how much is there? Well, I'm going to check that right now. You mean you didn't download or read it all? You didn't uh, do something crazy no. like I would? Mm -mm. <laughs> mm -mm. We really should be doing dramatic readings of My Immortal and this catalog thing. That's <laughs> what our summer episode should be. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> For your listening pleasure, uh, the... For your <laughs> listening pleasure. <laughs> oh, boy. We absolutely should do that, because that would be fabulous. Uh, I had to find something awesome to do. I just found, I just found a fandom wiki. No. On, yeah, on yes. the papers. No. Aha. Uh -huh. Oh, my God. Catalog of rare books, manuscripts, and curiosa. Those got to be worth something now, right? Amazing! It's so good. But yeah, um, small small press article. I just God, there's so much. It's amazing. The interdimensional <laughs> travel call. I just I oh. oh. That's one of those times when I hear about stuff like this, where I would love to pick the brain of someone who sees stuff like this and is like, yep, totally real. Uh, well, we, we could put you in contact with someone. I just don't know if you really want to. Uh, no, 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 this is a this is a uh, it's a thought experiment. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's a thought yeah. experiment because I wouldn't have patience. And I would snap, call them crazy, and then huff off. So that's... <laughs> mm -hmm. This is so mm -hmm. fascinating, though. Like, what the what? Escape from Earth Prime. I love... Th These titles are amazing. <laughs> yeah, they're real good. Oh, wow. The Library of a Traveler. Gosh. The Library of a Traveler. I... The human brain is a wonder. Mm -hmm. Tis. Now I'm like <laughs> finding other. Now you're going for it, aren't you? Now I'm finding other Inconcubala, like stuff from oh the 16th God. century. Now I just want to go in and look at like 16th, 17th century conspiracy theories. Do it. Imagine? Oh, it's probably a real fucking trip. Like, yep. Yeah, oh, oh man, old oh, school, God. like, 
conspiracy theories? Like, fuck. <laughs> yep. Ye oldie conspiracy theory. <laughs> the moon is going to fall from the sky. Yep, 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 yep. So, yeah, it was uh, not a lot, but that was uh, Ong's hat. Um, and the Traveler's Cult. This is great. The Traveler's Cult. Yep. And the Traveler's Cult. I mean, really, it's just a fandom. And they have oh, a parasocial sure. relationship yeah. with this dude. So, like... <laughs> it's, the, it's the first parasocial relationship. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Don't, uh... Yeah. Nope. Well, like, it's the it's the idea of... What is it? The That, that quote that a lot of people like to bring up about um, L. Ron Hubbard. Basically, if you write a book and say that... Um, say that it's religious, people will follow it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's yep. basically, it's the same thing, right? Um, yeah. Start that's, your that's own me. religion. Yeah. That's me. That's me paraphrasing, obviously, but it's not far off but from the original quote from what I can will. remember. That's it for this week. Next week, we introduce you to the spunky fish wizard herself, Courtney, who will be telling us all about the terrible things that those adorable sea creatures do and teach us all about some overlooked cool dudes of the sea. As always, you can find links, sources, and pictures on our website at thehumanexception.com. To stay up to date with everything exceptional, follow us on Facebook or Twitter at The Human Exception. And if you want to hit us up and say hi, feel free to message us there or shoot us an email at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Magu caving? Sure. <laughs> I totally think that if we weren't caving, the noises would be what freaked me out the most. Yeah, it's like, it's weird going through like old abandoned mine shafts and like old caves and stuff because everything makes noise and everything is sort of like it will yeah everything is sort of amplified by the fact that you don't have visibility visibility and like all of your senses are kind of like going because you you can't see very well so like your feel and your hearing and everything is just like that heightened radar of like, oh my god, what was that? Yeah. Why does it feel weird? Like even a cold breeze just feels wrong. Yeah. In those places. Totally. I forgot. I got something to tell you about the fish tank. <laughs> oh god. It's a quick one. Um, I was doing my like weekly fish tank clean because you gotta kind of do water changes regularly. Oh okay, yeah putting it in the group right now so I just put a picture in the group and i saw this thing it's like up near the filter and it was like a what? bunch of little bubbles right and i was like what the fuck is this shit like it looks like eggs like you'd think like you know fish eggs or something but my fish are live bearing fish 
oh. so they don't lay eggs. And the shrimp eggs are much smaller. So I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, they're snail eggs. My snails decided to lay eggs. So this is what? what's going on now. <laughs> oh my gosh. You have an entire biodome. Yeah, so now they're separated, but <laughs> yeah. Once these eggs hatch, it's just gonna I'm just gonna be taken over by snails. So Oh my gosh. It's an exciting life, man. Yeah, I thought it when I looked at the picture, I'm like, those are fish eggs, and you're like, nope, they're not fish eggs. What? Yeah, they completely threw me off. I'm like, I'm 99% sure that my fish are live bearing. I'm like, if they're not the fish and they're not the shrimp, then like, then what do the snails what? lay eggs? Like, I messaged Courtney, like, do snails lay eggs? Just yeah. like, oh, yeah, they do. I'm like, okay. <laughs> she said, they don't actually <laughs> look like that. And I was like, yeah, apparently the type of snails that I have lay them like this, but otherwise they look different. Like what? a lot of the times, a lot of snails are asexual and where they, where in which they change gender whenever the fuck they feel like it and then just go That's to town. Amazing. But the snails that I have, um, have, um, defined genders. And I, I, I thought that I might've had a male and female in the beginning when I figured out what they were, cause I had to figure out what they were first, which was an adventure. Um, so this, this, I guess just confirms it. <laughs> okay. That's really cool. Jeez. Yeah. 